Wednesday, November 28, 2018. This is Born to Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Timothy Lawson. Hope everybody is doing well out there. We are uh, in the beginning of the holiday season, right? Because the holiday season is Thanksgiving toward, to, to the end of the year, right? I think that we consider it the holiday season, so I guess we're sort of to the uh, front of it. December is upon us, and I'm sitting here wondering where the heck did 2018 go? My goodness, did that go by quickly? couple things of interest on our side, facebook.com slash veteransaffairs is where you can follow us on Facebook. You'll notice today, November 28th, that we shared a Facebook Live event from the Chickasaw Nation. They hosted a uh, Veterans Town Hall that Secretary Wilkie spoke at. So um, if you want to see... Uh, if you want to see that event, if you want to uh, hear Secretary Wilkie's remarks, uh, simply go to facebook.com slash veteransaffairs. You will see the feed that we shared uh, and uh, Secretary Wilkie at the podium providing his remarks. Uh, also, through the end of the weekend, we're going to be sharing segments from the recent episode of The American Veteran. The American Veteran um, is a compilation of stories that we put together a few times a year and compile sort of into one show that we call The American Veteran. So over the next uh, three to four days, I'm going to be sharing the individual stories on our Facebook page so you can see them. If you're interested, if you, if, you, if you like those stories, go to blogs.va.gov, go to the go to the, the categories portion, you'll see the American Veteran, and you can watch the full episodes there to see all of the stories uh, sort of uh, put together all uh, in one package. Very cool product that we put together uh, and some really inspiring stories from uh, from our veterans that we get the opportunity to serve. This week's episode is going to be with Sarah Verardos. Sarah is the CEO of the Independence Fund. The Independence Fund is helping uh, disabled veterans get track chairs um, so that way they can stay, continue to be on the move. Uh, they also help wounded, ill, and injured veterans uh, regain their independence through other means. Uh, but the track chair is definitely where they're, uh, where they're well known. She is her husband's caregiver. Along with being the CEO of the Independence Fund, she is her husband's caregiver, and I thought this would be a nice way to wrap up November, which is Caregivers Month. And it's appropriate because just recently, uh, Sarah announced that the Independence Fund has a new program called Operation Resiliency, uh, and it's a program that's teaming with us, the Department of Veterans Affairs, to host suicide prevention reunion retreats with the veterans of high suicide rate in military units. So um, very, uh, very important work being done. Really honored to have that partnership between the Department of Veterans Affairs and the Independence Fund. Uh, and I know that uh, this is going to be an effort that can only benefit the veteran community and our society altogether as we learn better ways to prevent suicide. Sarah is going to talk to us about how her, how her and her husband uh, met their uh, how they grew their family, his injuries, how that impacted their family life, her experience at uh, her experience as a caregiver, and then her efforts at the Independence Fund. Lots of great content here. Know you're gonna enjoy it. I served in Vietnam. I served in World War II. I served in Afghanistan. And VA serves us all. No matter when you served. No matter if you saw combat or not. There are benefits for veterans of every generation. See what VA can do for you. 
To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov. That's www.va.gov. By the way, I should probably tell the audience we're talking to Sarah Ferrado, uh, CEO of the Independence Fund, care- caregiver to your husband, right? Yes. Um, we usually talk to veterans about their, their, their decision to join the United States military. Um, were you, where was your husband or yeah, where was your husband in his military career when you guys started dating? So we actually met in high school. Okay. We were very dear friends. So, so we went through a lot of, um, you know, young life together and we were there in high school, very small school in Rhode Island during the events of September 11th. And like many warfighters of his generation, that was his call to join. Sure. So he made a pact with two of our other dear friends to join the military after graduation. Yeah. Those, those are great ideas, right? Packs with your friends (laughs) to go do something crazy, like join the military. Yeah. Um, and so how did you feel about the decision? Did you, I mean, were you, were you in, a, in a place of patriotism where you understood the call to duty with the pending war? Did you have more reservations about it? Where were you sitting on that? Michael has always been determined um, and probably a little stubborn with what he wants to do. So um, there was probably no talking him out of joining. And uh, I was very and always will be very proud of his military service. Yeah. And what did he, what did he enlist as? Um, 11 Bravo okay. Infantry. He sure. was like, if he was going to go in, he was going to go all in. Right. And he was going to go with the best of the best, 82nd Airborne. 82nd yes. Airborne. We've heard of them, right? Yeah, I've heard of them. <laughs> I've heard of them a time or two. Um, either either on tattoos or on hats <laughs> or anybody who was from 82nd will make sure you know. That they say, they were. how do you know someone was in the 82nd Airborne? They'll tell they you. Tell you. Yep. They tell you. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, in terms of we got we actually got engaged um, during his medical recovery in Texas. Okay. And um, at that point, I was I realized, as I had known, you know, the army the army calls the shots, and so we didn't want to yeah. plan this wedding until we knew he he was completely out. So we got married about ten months after he left active duty. Okay. What what um how long then was he in before he got injured? How long? Three years. Three years. Mm-hmm. How. Um, when he was stationed, did you were you joining him in those moves, or were you staying yeah. at home while no, he I was? No, I was in Rhode Island. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, where were you when he got the news that he was uh, injured? I got the news actually in Rhode Island on Facebook from his mother. Oh wow! So when you uh, you said you got engaged ten months after he got out, right? Or uh, you got, we got married. You got ten married months. ten, ten yes, months sir. out. You got engaged while he was in uh, while he was in recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, when you, when you got engaged to him, did you realize that you were going to be his caregiver? Is that something you knew was going to be a part of your life? I always say that Mike, the the first time that I was going to see him post injury, he really wanted to make sure I understood the extent of his injuries. And I remember having this conversation actually with his mom. Um, and it was not a life he wanted for me. I think he knew before I did how long this road was going to be. I didn't realize it. And, but I would do it again over and over and over again, of course. Sure. Um, when, when did it dawn on you that, um, well, because the better question was, when did you start becoming a, uh, an, a full-time caregiver for him? The end of his med board process is when I feel like I had to take over a lot of the process. And leaving the Army for the final time, he was medically retired in January 2013, I would later sort of equate it to leaving the hospital with our newborn babies. Like, I could not believe that they were 
sending him home and that I was going to take care of him. Sure. It was daunting. It was scary. I didn't know what to expect. Um, and I remember the first time like pushing him through an airport and pushing him in a wheelchair. I'm holding his prosthetic leg sort of under my chin and carrying our bags. <laughs> And sorry, the visual is kind of funny. It was crazy. <laughs> yeah. But then at the end, I was like, I've got this. I can do this. Sure. Um, what um, what was one of the bigger challenges um, uh, that you noticed immediately that maybe you weren't anticipating in being a full time caregiver? You know, I'll be frank. I did not realize that his war was over and mine was just beginning. Mm. And in the beginning, we returned to Rhode Island where we're both from after he recovered at Walter Reed and then in Texas at Bamsey. And his war was over and mine was just beginning. And mine was fought on the home front and frankly against the very institution that I thought was going to take care of him. We had a very difficult, painful transition to VA services. Um, it took about seven weeks for him to access very basic care. Sure. I had to go on YouTube and learn how to pack his wounds myself. He still had open wounds. Oh, wow. Um, I had the fire department carrying him in and out of the house. Um, I was duct taping his prosthetic leg together. It was a, a very dark time for me. And I realized that I had to kind of relieve him of duty. And this was my war on the home front now. Yeah. Did you, were you, um, you said you went back to Rhode Island, but were you familiar with any other service members or any other families that maybe were also going through a similar, did you have a, did you have any camaraderie in that experience? Leaving Texas was difficult because there was a built-in support system there. You know, everyone has prosthetics. Everyone has wheelchairs. It was very normal. And then bringing him back to Rhode Island was a, just a stark um, change for us. You know, being him being a military retiree in his 20s was very unlike the rest of the community, the retiree community sure. around us. How was... Um you know how how is your your community in Rhode Island when it comes to accessibility? We know that uh, a lot of a lot of um, uh, neighborhoods and communities have a long way to go on that. Right. Um, I remember my when I visited my 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 wife now, but when 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 we were dating, she was living in Columbus, and we looked at her apartment complex, and we, were, we looked around, and we realized if someone visited you with a wheelchair, they would not be able to get to your apartment. Right. There is no, there's literally no way other than like getting a pulley system built right. that to get them up there. We um we spent about maybe nine, ten months post-retirement in Rhode Island. We're both lifelong Rhode Islanders and love it, but we realized that the weather, the prosthetics, none of it was a good mix for us. And we also um, decided he loved North Carolina. He'd been stationed at Bragg. And so we decided to go you know, back to Carolina for him. That's where so much of his heart is, of course. And we settled in Charlotte, where the Independence Fund has its national headquarters. Sure. Uh, we, you know, we know that um, one of the more difficult things for any veteran um, when they transition to the military is find, finding that renewed sense of mm -hmm. purpose. Um, what was that experience like for him from your perspective? It was very sad for me to watch this man with out a purpose, without a mission. He missed his team. He missed the goal. And he so badly wanted to go back in the fight. And that was what was most difficult for him. You know, even waking up from his coma at Walter Reed and feeling like the Taliban got one over on him, like they took him out of the fight. And that has actually stayed with him. You know, we're eight years out and he's back at Walter Reed right now, recovering from surgery number 119. Holy smokes. Yeah. 
119? <laughs> yes. Wow, that's how many episodes of the podcast I've put out. <laughs> so for every episode, he's had at least one surgery. Yes. That's not. Well, I mean, yeah. I don't. I don't know how much you're willing to like, but like, sure. what like what injuries are is he dealing with? Sure. So when you know he was in, he deployed to southern Afghanistan in August 2009 to conduct combat operations. They had high casualty rates very quickly from improvised explosive devices. He was hit twice, April 2010. The first time was April 10th, and he was riding as a gunner. They hit a roadside bomb. He was ejected out 30 feet. He was medically evacuated. Um, Definitely banged up and had some injuries, but he requested to be returned to his unit. And 14 days later, he was on his first foot patrol back in action. Another IED, this one, he was on a foot patrol um, in just farmland, Taliban-controlled farmland. And the IED went off, and it blew off his left leg, much of his left arm. Um, He's burned over about 35% of his body and had severe facial um, injuries. So he was expected to be dead on arrival. And I always tell him that the first hurdle he jumped was that he was not dead on arrival. And um, he stayed in a coma throughout Germany and into Walter Reed. But since then, it's been a constant battle of surgery, infection, surgery, infection. He is dependent for his activities of daily living. So he does have, you know, we have in-home nursing. He has caregiving. And... It's been um, a very difficult situation with such so much polytrauma for one person, of course. Sure. It's interesting that you mentioned that he he looks at it as the Taliban got one on over him, that they, that they took him out of the fight. I've never, I've never I'm sure that's something that plenty of veterans resonate with, but I, I've never actually heard it quite said like that, that they view it as... Uh, you know, one for the Taliban, zero for the for the veteran. And I don't we, we I don't... try to reverse that. And that's okay. really important to me because, you know, when when the days are tough and it feels like he can't push anymore. I mean, we say we don't want to give them his yeah. life on a silver platter. I don't want that for my children. Right. And, um, you know, f- feeling like you're still fighting that every day is actually a push forward for him. Sure. And so I tell him, you know, every time he comes out of anesthesia and every time he has difficulty, I always say it's another chance to show America's enemies they can't take Mike Verado out. And yeah. He likes that. I so, like that. Yeah. <laughs> take yeah. that. Yeah. Um, you, so something that's unique about your family is uh, you have three kids, mm-hmm. all of them conceived post injury, mm-hmm. um, which I think is unique for a lot of military and veteran families that are in this situation. Um was it a tough decision to decide to have kids post injury? Um, just be, just on the, you know recovering from an injury, recovering from any any uh, mental health issues. Rec- you know uh, how busy your life must be dealing with that. How was it coming to that the decision to have kid number one? Well, I actually look at our client base at the Independence Fund and the history of the Independence Fund, and I say these track chairs, which are our original hallmark program. A lot of the veterans that we assisted with that. Due to the, you know, their occupation in the military were usually infantry or other frontline positions, and they had these catastrophic injuries. Young, enlisted, single men. So we give them a track chair. They go on. They get married. We bring their wife on a caregiver retreat. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, they have a couple of kids. And so we provide adaptive sports to get them outside riding bikes with the kids. And, you know, they're having some problems with VA. So our advocacy program steps in. And now we're launching a family program because a lot of our clients that did have these catastrophic wartime injuries, although we are very proudly open to all errors. But when we look at our post 9-11 catastrophically war wounded, many of our clients actually started their families post injury. That's interesting. And so for us, 
um, having children has always been such a blessing. And I think our little girls have restored so much of what the terrorists took from him and just given him hope, a purpose and a team again. Very cool. Um, how, how has it been? Um, how, how old is your oldest? We have three little girls. Okay. One, two and four. Oh, okay. Yes. So still, still quite young then. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, has the four year old, um, what grasp does she have? Do you believe on, on her father's situation? My children never knew anything was wrong or different about their dad until other people started to tell them. Right. And that was a very painful process. We were at preschool, um, when our oldest was three and someone said to her, you know, Grace's dad doesn't have a leg. He's weird and gross. Mm. And she was so upset because, you know, she thinks her daddy's handsome and that he's a hero and we're so proud of his military service. And, you know, the following evening I was putting her to bed and she told me again that this little girl said that her daddy was gross. And I knew how bothered she was by that. And, And it made me realize I have been dealing with this for years. Of course, people have questions, people stare, but my children needed really tactical tools to help other people understand uh, their dad and other veterans' wartime injuries. You know, my husband served with the best of the best, and many of the men he served with are also amputees. Um, they're wheelchair bound, and so for our children, all the uncles, you know, are missing legs, and it's it's very normal for them. So I did write a children's book called Hero at Home. Yes, um, which which helps in really easy to explain for a preschool to elementary school crowd. Explain wartime injuries, the visible and invisible injuries. Yeah. So was was your experience with your own children the inspiration behind writing this book? Absolutely. I mean, I realized that night I needed to help other children understand, you know, why some dads may have robot legs and why they look different, and and also that we have told our children since then that people their bodies may change but they have the same heart still and that was a really important message I wanted to pass on that the veterans who look different anyone who looks different from us they're not scary um and you know celebrating difference and diversity of course have you got an opportunity to hear any of the feedback or impact that the, the the books had on other families I've heard from teachers across the country, um, moms, dads, so many people who just say, thank you for giving me these tools to celebrate military service. Um, And we try to teach children, and and I've heard this feedback across the country, that rather than looking at a veteran who has a prosthetic leg and telling the children, don't stare, you know, we are urging people to say, say hello, ask them about their service, thank them for their service. And um, let's really celebrate this wonderful country that is free because of America's heroes. Sure. Um, so let's uh, let's transition into your work at the Independence Fund. Mm-hmm. Um, for those that are unfamiliar, give a little just a brief backstory on the conception of uh, of the Independence Fund and, and, and your involvement in it. The Independence Fund was founded in 2007 with a great spirit of providing true independence back to those who sacrificed theirs for us. And um, I became involved not long after my husband um, realized that he would benefit greatly from a track wheelchair. I ran development for many years at the Independence Fund um, and took over about a year and a half ago or so. We have an incredible team, mostly um, veterans and caregivers. We really love to empower um, military families. And our programs are tangible. We're giving back direct support. We've awarded more than $60 million in direct support um, through our track wheelchairs, adaptive sports, um, caregiver retreats. We've served over 500 caregivers. 
We've helped more than 1,500 veterans with adaptive sports, and we've provided more than 2,300 track wheelchairs. Yeah. I, I really liked the um, – you touched on it briefly earlier, but almost the fl- the, the sort of the, the flow through one's life and how you have, you have stuff set up to – to um, aid that veteran and that family at each point, the mobility is first thing. Get the veteran back on the move. Then, um, you know, adaptive sports keep them active once they've uh, once they have people to be active with and they're used to that environment again. The caregiver support and then the advocacy that sort of fills in the gaps along the way. Um, has that always been sort of? Uh, has those four priorities sort of been there from uh, from the beginning, or uh, or where did this begin and how did it develop? The Independence Fund was definitely developed around the track chair initiative. Okay. And we've been able to expand our programs and support. But I tell my team, I charge them with this. I want us to be like a disaster relief organization. We need to be fluid. We need to keep up with the needs of these families. And our support should be immediate. It should be tangible. And we should fulfill these unmet needs for our catastrophically wounded, ill, and injured. What is a positive impact you've seen um, through these initiatives um, that had sort of a unique, uh, unique impact that maybe wasn't the intent, but uh, definitely, definitely an, another win, another mark in the win column. The Independence Fund has so many wins that yeah. I, mean, I could sit here all day and tell sure. you that because we we've provided these tangible support to families. But yeah. be it our advocacy program, people who are you know trying to access benefits that they are due um, due to infertility that's service connected, being able to sure. successfully get them through that process and then celebrate the news of a growing family. I mean that's incredible. Veterans who are bed bound, who love going outside and getting outside in their track chair. And from hearing from caregivers who just say that we gave them the tools to carry on, we know that secondary PTS and stress in caregivers is such a problem. I mean, these people are really carrying the torch on the home front. And being able to be with them, our commitment is lifelong. We want to be with these families every step of the way. Sure. What what challenges uh, do do you guys have in delivering these these benefits and these uh, resources to veterans? What are some either hurdles that you that you've had along the way or just sort of routine stuff that like become sticking points. We have a we have a fabulous team and they they execute I mean, the talk mission. up talk up your team then. Yeah, I mean we everyone on our team is there because like they eat live breathe and sleep the mission and yeah. We feel that there is no population more deserving than those that, you know, put on their country's uniform and then were severely injured defending it. Yeah. Um what is a um, what is a experience that you had before joining the Independence Fund that you had with your husband that is contributing to your success with the Independence Fund? If that question makes sense. I mean, it makes sense, but Independence Fund is so tightly woven into our story pretty much from the beginning. Okay. The the track chair when my husband got the track chair, I mean, it was a game changer. Sure. And. It allowed him these measures of independence that he thought were gone forever. Just going in the backyard, playing with our dogs. We've got three dogs. Nice. And um, even participating in like you know yard work, things that you don't think you'll be able to do anymore. I have seen firsthand how impactful the track chair is on the entire family, not only the disabled veteran, but the entire family. Yeah, I mean, so how has it positively impacted you as a member of that family when your husband got access to this track chair? Well. 
he loves to go outside. He loves to, you know, hunt, fish, shoot, all of those things he was able to do from his track chair. He's been on deer hunts, um, goes outside with his friends, and also just playing with our children outside, being able to keep up with them was something that worried him. And outside, you know, I I feel very comfortable. Like they love, they fight over riding in his lap. So (laughs) we need a bigger track chair. I mean, we really do because it's like three little girls trying to cram, you know, into one track chair with him, but we might need like a side cart or something. How fast do those things go? About five miles an hour. Five miles an hour. So, but they're mighty. I mean, they go through anything. Sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, how do, do do they travel well? Are they... Yeah, we do. We we at the Independence Fund, we make sure that we provide a trailer okay. um, to each veteran. So that the chair is not sitting in their garage like we we want them to be part of their community, be engaged. We have a fantastic program team who matches with other resources in the community, other nonprofits in communities so that if we're getting someone in Montana, a track chair, let's find you somewhere that you can go fish. From yeah. It, so I mean, so like our veterans using track chairs, are they also uh, traveling with a normal wheelchair to like more easily access other buildings and stuff like how does the logistics on that work yes the track chair is all terrain i mean uh, snow sand water i mean you name it it can go through and we've tested it all trust me (laughs) we know but in terms of um actual like day-to-day use they they do a lot of them use it daily for independence get outside be with their family but it's not really conducive to like being folded up and put in your car i mean i think it's (laughs) about 450 pounds holy smokes yeah (laughs) There's a really great picture that we shared uh, on our Instagram account probably about a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. And, and the Independence Fund made had a hand in this. I don't know, but a veteran had gotten a track chair and was actually walking on the beach with his with his son. Um, and it was like this back, back shot of them walking down the beach mm-hmm. and holding hands. And it was like this really powerful moment. And um, it is pretty incredible that we've reached a point in technology that we can get disabled veterans and disabled people on the beach like sand is such a weird terrain to try to 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 uh, maneuver over and here they are just mm-hmm. strolling down the down the beach it's right. amazing we last year my family and i went to florida and i just didn't plan it properly didn't bring a track chair with us and so we're on the beach and my girls of course like they want dad to build a sand castle they want him to go in the water and we used this hotel beach wheelchair that they had and my husband's looking at it and he's like it's not sturdy it's not sturdy and you know i've said you'll be fine so um he gets in it and we bring him in the water and the chair flips over oh my goodness and he gets tangled like his swimsuit gets tangled in it and all these people rush in to help him and we end up having to cut his swimsuit to untangle him from the chair and i realized gosh with a track chair which we had about 12 hours later we we rented one you know we realized that um all of those hurdles to independence, to family time, are gone with a track chair. I mean, these things, they're a beast. They really work. Yeah. Uh, tell us about the advocacy part of what you do. Um, there's a lot of VA staff listening. Uh, there's a lot of people involved in stuff like that. Um, any challenges that veterans you see are having routinely with VA, I know it'd be uh, valuable to them to understand what challenges are, are there. Our client base, because they are catastrophically wounded, ill, and injured, typically have interagency issues, meaning that VA is not the only government agency that they interface from. Sure. A lot of them have TRICARE, Social Security, um, which brings in, of course, a lot of other agencies. Yeah. What we do that sets us apart is rather than do a lot of these rank-and-file benefit claims, which certainly we have great partnerships that we refer those out to, but we really deal with the healthcare side of things. So we hear from a veteran who says, I'm a double amputee, not sure why, maybe there's a miscommunication, but VA is telling me I don't qualify for a power wheelchair. And 
we know leadership at VA. We know that the people at VA really do have a heart for those who have served our country. And sometimes it's as simple as a communication issue. Sometimes it's a little bit more complicated about a policy that needs to be changed. And whatever that is, through um, our advocacy on Capitol Hill and really enacting and reforming legislation, and then also just direct directly interfacing with VA for our clients, we're able to have a high success rate of ensuring that the medical needs are met for our catastrophically disabled veterans and that the burden is lightened for their family. Sure. Tell me about your caregiver retreats and what uh, what caregivers and families are gleaning from, from that experience. Our caregiver retreats are so important because we know this, caring for a disabled veteran is a 24-7 role. There's no respite. And Oftentimes, you become, and I know this personally, you become sometimes mom, dad, a nurse, a doctor, the case manager, the keeper of all of the things. Yeah. And that wears on a person. And so being able to bring these caregivers together and offer them peer support, some respite, pampering, and also really tactical tools that they are taking home with them. This is how to alleviate stress. This is what I can do when I feel that I've reached my max. Here are resources in the community. We provide aftercare so that when they leave our retreat, it's not just that they've been relaxed and they can go home, but we are staying with them. We're tracking the families and providing unmet needs, be it you know gym memberships or childcare or food delivery. We are making sure that they feel our support really wrapped around them and, um, and with them for the long term. Yeah. Our family program is actually going to launch in about 10 days. Oh, very cool. Yes, which we are so thrilled about. So our first family retreat will take place in Disney World. Oh, good. And we're bringing seven catastrophically wounded veterans, post 9-11 veterans for this retreat, all who had um, either infants when they were injured or um, had their children post-injury. So okay. we'll have a lot of young children with an emphasis on art therapy for those kids. Yeah. And doing things like what color is today so that the kids can really talk about um, some of the challenges. You know, my children will sometimes say, um, that the noises Mike makes when he moves can can scare him. They think he's in pain. Mm. I mean, obviously, sometimes there's a little moaning and groaning. Sure. And so we've taught them, okay, that's dad's moving voice. Yeah. And really being able to help these families shape um, a really healthy household for all of them. Yeah. One thing that I was talking to Liz... Rottenberry. I almost went with Rottenberry. I was like, nope, that was wrong. We had a big conversation about how it's not yeah. Rottenberry. Yes. It's Rottenberry. Yeah. Um, is... Caregivers uh, are like, you know, so wives, girlfriends, mothers, whoever it may be, full time caregivers who also have a relationship as an immediate family member, the challenges that they have of being a caregiver and then separately be a wife and to mm -hmm. try to um, keep that as separated as much as possible so that way, you know, their spouse responds to them appropriately based on which role they're taking in that moment. What sort of guidance are you going to give family members on, on that challenge? Well, for us, I look at a lot of my husband's medical situation, and I've had to provide what, what is you know unofficial nursing care a lot of the time, like packing bandages and wounds and, and checking him in those ways. And it's very hard to maintain how are you husband and wife versus just um, caregiver and care recipient. Yeah. And we work hard to have strong boundaries in place around that. Um, for our physically injured, like we do 
and our clients do utilize a lot of nursing care either at home or through VA. And we've seen fabulous partnerships between VA and the community and making sure our catastrophically disabled does have that support at home. So it's not all falling on the caregiver. So I would definitely for our client base, refer them to work with VA so that you're not carrying the burden alone because actually VA has incredible resources that they do want to match in the home and also communicating with the veteran. Sure. And and that's been just a huge one of keeping the communication lines open, boundaries on, you know, how how you're dealing in that moment. Are you being the caregiver and saying this is what's medically necessary? Um, or are you husband and wife and having some time off from the injury? So so that's been um, a game changer for us personally. There was a time where um, I felt like if we would go out to dinner, for example, I would make the dinner reservation, give my husband his shower, get him dressed for dinner and push him there in the wheelchair. And it's very hard to then feel like, okay, let's flip the switch. And now I'm your wife sitting across from you. And that's why being able to maybe rely on friends or say to my husband um, through other programs he utilizes, like, why don't you and your life coach take on making a dinner reservation? Yeah. And, and that takes it off of me. So really being able to rely on your community. I think there is no better advice for a caregiver than, you know, accept help and ask for help and then let people help you because they want to. Sure. Um, tell me about, a, tell me about a, another veteran focused organization that you're familiar with that has you excited right now. We are very proud to partner with both Psych Armor and Elizabeth Dole Foundation. I sure. think they're incredible. I'm always proud to be an Elizabeth Dole fellow. I'm an alumni fellow from what feels like 100 years ago, but <laughs> is it really that long ago? And um, great support. I love that EDF has really identified, like, what is a caregiver? The Independence Fund is proud to be in the fight with them. We work extremely closely with them on an ongoing basis. And also with PsychArmor, um, with their courses, we are going to be pushing out some really incredible courses that deal with um, families like mine and how the community can rally around them, how educators can understand them, and um, talking to your children about these injuries. Sure. Uh, so tell us, is there, is, there any, is there any other part of your experience um, as a caregiver or um, any aspect of the in, uh, Independence Fund that uh, you want to make sure gets mentioned that we haven't brought up yet today? It is very important for me, for veterans and VA providers to realize that we know there are incredible people at VA. We actually um, hosted an inaugural Healthcare Hero Award a couple of weeks ago that we will do annually that recognizes one outstanding VA medical provider for going above and beyond the call of duty for our nation's wounded, ill, and injured. And I was so proud to present that inaugural award to Dr. Thomas Reposardo. He's um, out of the Salisbury, North Carolina VA. Sure. And I know firsthand how incredible he is because he's cared for my husband for the past five years. Yeah. And I also look at someone like Dr. Valerie Moore, and she's also out of the Salisbury VA. She's been my husband's surgeon for five years. And, you know, she has taken time off and come with us to civilian appointments. She drove um, from North Carolina to Walter Reed for this most recent surgery just to be there for support. So... I really believe VA and the families and other nonprofit organizations working together are what is going to equal success for these families for the long haul. Sure. Um, Salisbury, uh, I believe, was one of the medical or one of the facilities that took in 
patients that had to be evacuated from Hampton prior to mm-hmm. Hurricane Florence. Um, and that entire healthcare system down there in North Carolina did a fantastic job uh, accommodating for such things. And it was uh, about as seamless as, as VA could have hoped. So, um, yeah, that um, a lot of praise to go all around in that, that Absolutely. area. Absolutely. All of the directors um, in North Carolina VA facilities are veterans themselves. Yeah. And I've, I've sat with them and met with them. We've shared stories. And I think that they get it. And that is so important. Like, they, they, of course, want to do right for their fellow veterans. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for your time thank talking you. to me today. I, Thanks I, for having me. Yeah, of course. It's, uh, it's and been for a, your service. I mean, we're, we're so oh. grateful that you've turned it into something so good for so many others. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Uh, trust me, the I got way more out of the military than they got out of me. <laughs> I, I milked that relationship, you know. Uh, I gave them a few years of my life, and they gave me a free education. I think we're going <laughs> to call it uh, call it even there. But um, for anybody who is who's who's heard this and is interested, they want to learn learn a little bit more. Maybe they have a veteran that could benefit from a track chair, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. What what do they need to know about the Independence Fund? Call us eight 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 five one seven nine nine six, or look us up at independencefund.org. Wonderful. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. My grandfather served in World War II. Spending time with him were the best memories of my life. I became a physician at VA because of my grandfather, so I can help others like him. I can't imagine working with better doctors or a more dedicated staff. I'm fulfilling my life's mission with the help of my team and thanks to these veterans. I'm proud to be a doctor at VA and proud to honor my grandfather every day. Search VA Careers to find out more. Thank you so much for Sarah for joining me. She was nice enough to come by VA Central Office, sit down uh, and talk about these matters that uh, that are important not only to her, but to caregivers and veterans uh, that receive these benefits uh, from the Independence Fund uh, and, and looking forward to our partnership with them as, uh, as we move to uh, be better at preventing suicide. You can find the Independence Fund at independencefund.org for information on their efforts. You can also follow them on Twitter at IndyFund, I-N-D-Y Fund. This week's Medal of Honor citation reading is for William Creelman. William Creelman. Service is United States Navy, rank of landsman. Division was the USS Maine. Year of Honor, 1897. Citation reads, Attached to the USS Maine, 6 February, 1897. Distinguishing himself, Creelman showed extraordinary heroism in the line of his profession during an attempt to save life at sea. We honor his service. That wraps up episode 122. My goodness, 122 of Born to Battle. Do appreciate everybody taking the time to listen. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it on the social media of your choice using hashtag Born to Battle. Leave us a, re- a rating and review in your podcatcher of choice, whether it be iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, Google Play, wherever, wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Do appreciate that rating and review. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at D-E-P-T Vet Affairs. I've already told you where you can find us at Facebook, facebook.com slash Veterans Affairs. And if you have any feedback on the show, please email us at newmedia at va.gov. I'm Timothy Lawson, signing off. <laughs>